we go through this, uh, we will go briefly. But I hope that I will pick your interest and that will help you to look further at some of the details that we will mention in the presentation. As uh, we begin, I'd like to begin with prayer. Uh, and if you would, please bow with me. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be together on this Lord's Day morning. We're so thankful, Father, for your providing the church for us, for the encouragement that we find in the church, the fellowship that we, we have. We're so thankful for the strength that we gain from our association with one another. And Lord, we're especially thankful for the opportunity to study your word and to apply that in our lives. We pray you'll be with us in our study of the book of Isaiah. We pray that the truths that we discover in this book will stick with us and help to direct our lives to be more acceptable in your sight. Watch over us and bless us and be with the congregation of your church that assembles at this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Just one, one brief uh, announcement that we'll probably make again on Wednesday, but on Thursday at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, I have a container that's loading for Moldova. All of the, the miscellaneous medical stuff that so many of you have helped to sort in the small boxes, we're going to load those on a container. Uh, it's not heavy work. Uh, if you can, if you can, uh, if you're a Tetris expert, we need you because they will not, they cannot take any wood pallets. So all has to be offloaded, and the boxes will be stacked inside. And so, if you can help us, that will be this Thursday at 1 p.m. at uh, the congregation's facility. We're renting to to store. Willie's World, and so we encourage you to come and join us. Uh, we don't have it nailed down, but that uh, I think is, is pretty sure. All right, as we begin looking at, at Isaiah, we begin the study of one of the major prophets of the Bible, and you have the distinction between major and minor prophets not because of their value but because of the length of their writings. And consequently, Isaiah is a major prophet. Uh, there are some you know, significant lessons that Isaiah in his prophecy brings out to us. I like Isaiah. I like Jeremiah. They speak in terms to situations that you and I are facing today. And as we go through these, actually all the prophets do, but as you go through uh, these lessons, I hope that you'll be impressed as well and that you will turn back and study more of the prophets and the message. If you're looking for a, a motivation to be strong and to, to be steadfast and to be bold, let me suggest to you, you can't do any better than study the prophets. Uh, and we'll see this in Isaiah. But let's start looking at, at a very basic question, that is, how do you define greatness in life? And there are many concepts of this. Some suggest it's found in military mites, and so you speak of the world powers and world empires. Others speak of financial successes. Others say that a great person is someone with a winsome personality, or others will say, well, it's the political clout. It's the way in which they're able to to navigate, manipulate, and work among themselves so that they can 
get their agendas passed. But Jesus Christ identifies greatness in an entirely new concept. He says in Matthew 20, it's not in the concept or perspective of the Gentiles, but it's in the concept of serving. The one who is the servant among you is the greatest among you. And that's the, that's the, the mark that God gives in regard to greatness. A number of historical anecdotes can talk about greatness. Um, one of my favorite, and, and I'll get to this slide in just a moment, is Charles uh, Charles V, who was emperor of Germany, king of Spain, lord of the Netherlands. He was born in Ghent, 1500. And over his lifetime, Charles V was very uh, successful. He fought and won 60 battles. He obtained six ultimate triumphs in those battles. He conquered four kingdoms, added eight principalities to his dominion, and his biography is an unparalleled instance of worldly power, military genius, and political intrigue. Charles V was a great man. Now, we're going to come back to Charles V at the end of the lesson this morning, but the point is the world gauges Charles as a great man. We'll see how that turns out in, in regard to Isaiah. Now up here you see a timeline in regard to Isaiah. He prophesied during the last half of the 8th century B.C. And the book that bears his name is often identified as the book that foretells the coming of the Messiah. In fact, a number of years ago, uh, I was asked to speak at Fried Hardeman on the topic of Isaiah and the topic uh, the title of this series was The Coming Christ. Well, that's the theme of the book of Isaiah. And in fact, as we, we go through the, uh, the upcoming season, you're going to hear many references to Isaiah quoted in regard to the birth of Christ. Uh, historically, we understand that there's not really any significance to that in the religious world, but in, in the secular world, many people will put their value in those things. Some of the greatest masterpieces of art and literature and music composition has come from the pages of Isaiah. Uh, I think of Handel's Messiah, a wonderful musical presentation. And when I was at uh, Fried Hardeman, I was taking a course on the major prophets and one of our requirements was to listen to Handel's Messiah. I thought, what a strange thing. I didn't even know who Gregor Handel was until that, that particular point. And uh, I listened to it, and, and we were studying through Isaiah, and it's amazing uh, as you begin to think about that. But Handel, Handel and his masterpiece there relies heavily upon Isaiah, for unto us a child is born, unto us, and he goes on and on in, in one of his uh, presentations. But Isaiah was very profound in foretelling the coming of the Messiah, and some identify him as the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. In fact, one author says, Isaiah is the greatest indeed, Isaiah is the king of all prophets. Well, that's kind of a relative assessment, really, because as you study the prophets, 
you come to identify and appreciate each one in, in a very unique way. But the study of his book is challenging, uh, but it's also rewarding. It's challenging because it's so so big, and as you begin your study in it, you begin asking where are we going to start and, and how are we going to put everything together. Uh, I came up with an overall outline of uh, Isaiah, and I'll post that on the website as well, listing, uh, trying to, uh, successive points about that. But it's really challenging. But it is rewarding because the issues he's talking about are very, very relevant. Uh, he deals with religion and morals and politics, and he deals with these things in ways that are as current as what our news feeds are today. Another thing about Isaiah is the predictive prophecy. Probably the, the most famous is Isaiah 7.14 where it speaks there about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. That was cited by Matthew and, and uh, his fulfillment of the prophecy. But the, uh, the prophecy presents the coming Christ. Isaiah 59 and verse 20 says, A Redeemer will come to Zion. And so it's talking there about the Lord and His coming. Here's a point about Isaiah. As you read through, especially you begin looking at, at say, chapters 30 and, and others that are like that, Isaiah is very blunt in what he's telling these people. And he's telling them, look, God does not want some kind of sensationalism. He doesn't want responses from emotionalism. God wants you to respond to him because of the faith that you have. Well, the words of the prophecy of Isaiah addresses not only the emotional aspect of religion, but it also addresses the arrogant aspect of religion. Isaiah, he does not really care for these folks that think that they know it all and these folks that think that they are so high and holy and righteous. Isaiah addresses the, uh, the haughty pride. He addresses the boastful military uh, the, the, the thing that impresses me about Isaiah, at the time he wrote, Egypt was a world power and Israel was looking, or Judah was looking to Egypt for saving. And Isaiah says, don't trust in the chariots, don't trust in the horses. You trust in the Lord God Almighty. But Isaiah had spoke to a number of people that had compromised God's truth. And as a result of their compromise, they had lost hope. And, and Isaiah, as you read Isaiah, the world hasn't changed. We still live in an environment, in a culture, in a nation, wherever you are in the world, all those factors are similar. But in all of those things, the only hope we have is that in the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah speaks to our hearts. And so as, as we go through this series, I want us to talk about the hope that Isaiah has for us and that his words speak to us. Because if you have confidence in God, you have hope. You take away your confidence in God and you take away your hope. See, that's what the devil wants to do. He wants to cause us to question God. He wants us to give up and surrender our confidence in God and therefore, we're in a hopeless situation. 
Well, read through Isaiah and you'll find that he addresses that point as well. Isaiah chapter 6 speaks about a compromise and the convictions that they have. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, Go and tell this people, keep on listening but do not perceive. Keep on looking but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Whenever you compromise your conviction and your faith in God, then you lose all hope. The greatness of Isaiah is seen in this point, I believe, he refuses to be intimidated. He, he will not be intimidated, not by the world powers, not by the sovereign king over the country, not by the arrogant religious rulers. He is not going to be intimidated because he is serving the Lord God Almighty. And this is, is a constant that you read throughout his prophecy. Intimidation leads to silence. Or it leads to some kind of muffled message that really isn't specific. I remember years ago, Brother Guy and Woods and I were riding somewhere and we were talking. And Brother Woods gave me this counsel that I've, I have appreciated for many, many years. Brother Woods said... Uh, now, Brother Catchelman, he never did get my word right, my name right, but that's Brother Guy in Woods. He'd call me whatever he wants. But he said, now, Brother Catchelman, you need to understand, people are not going to just get what you say. You've got to be very blunt in telling them what to say. He said, that's what the prophets did. And he said, that's what I've learned to do. And if any of you were around Brother Woods very much, you knew that that was the truth. But Isaiah would not be intimidated, and consequently, he would not be silenced. He knew what truth was, and so he was going to, to maintain that truth. Well, our treatment of Isaiah is going to be very, very brief. Uh, we have 13 weeks. We have uh, 66 chapters. How are we going to deal with this? We're going to deal with it in, in general topics. But as we, uh, we talk about Isaiah, what I want to do this morning is just give you an introduction, introduction to this man. The Bible tells us very little about his biography. In fact, chapter 1, verse 1 gives us the only biographical data that we have as far as his heritage. He was the son of Amos. Who that is, we have no idea. We do know that he was married. He had two children. And uh, his wife was called the prophetess in Isaiah 8 and verse 3. He had two sons. Shir Jeshub was one, and Mayor Shalahashbash was the other. Now, just for your trivia bank, Mayor Shalahashbash is the longest name in all the Bible. So remember that, George. That will be... That'll be your winning ace there. But each of these sons were born for a specific purpose and uh, a predictive prophecy to encourage uh, the king in his, his time. As you look at the family of Isaiah, we, we really do not have that many uh, details about him, but we understand that here is a home that was led by a godly husband and father that was ordered by a devout wife and mother and honored by obedient children. That's the kind of family that, uh, that oriented what he was going to say. 
Another thing about Isaiah is that it's often suggested he was a member of royalty. Somehow he was within the, uh, the line of the kings. And we see this uh, through the uh, internal factors of Isaiah. Some suggest that he was a cousin of King Uzziah. But we see that he had free access to the kings. He could just walk into the king's presence or the king would call him into the presence. So there was a, a very good relationship between that. It also indicated that he had a, a very good understanding of the national, international events that took place during their day. Uh, the writing of Isaiah is one of the, the greatest of the literary levels that you find in fact, if you want to, you can take the vocabulary and count the vocabulary of Isaiah. And that might be a little difficult since it'll be in Hebrew, but uh, Isaiah's vocabulary is much greater than the vocabulary of the other prophets. And so all of these factors seem to indicate that here's a man that uh, came from uh, a very elevated position of status in the culture at that time. Now let's look at some of the traits about Isaiah. The greatness of character. Remember Charles V, great man, how much he had done, what he had conquered, what he had amassed. The world would call him great. Isaiah, the Bible says, is a great man. So let's see what his greatness, uh, the foundation of his greatness. Number one, the first thing I think all the way through this, this uh, book is that of his faith in God. A number of instances. Uh, his discussion with Ahaz over in chapter 7, whenever he is coming with uh, uh, the situation there that, uh, you know, Jerusalem is about to be, be attacked, Ahaz is all upset, and in this discussion that he has with Ahaz, uh, you have this constant faith in God. Isaiah was convinced the world is in the hands of God. And Isaiah is convinced God is the governor of all the world. It doesn't matter the armies that you're facing. It doesn't matter the, the realm's riches that are coming. God is the governor of all things. And if God is in charge, it doesn't matter what the powers and the resources of the world have to offer an encounter to that. That's a significant point in Isaiah. But he comes to Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7, and Ahaz is all upset. He finds it incredible that Ahaz is going to be intimidated by world power. Look in, uh, in, in verse 2. It says... Uh, when it was reported to the house of David, saying the Arameans, that Syrians, have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Fear, real fear, was found and described at this place. And so the Lord in verse 3 says to Isaiah, Go out now and meet Ahaz, you and your son share Jeshub at the end of the conduit. Say to him, verse 4, take care, be calm, have no fear, do not be faint-hearted. Well, that was easier said than done whenever it comes to Ahaz. But Ahaz saw 
he sought protection not from God, but he sought protection from the Assyrians. And the cowardly Ahaz later on because of this, and we don't have time to talk about this, but here's an interesting point. Ahaz at this point decided, here are the Assyrians coming against me. I need help. I'm going to go to uh, Assyria, and they will take care of the Assyrians. And so he goes to the, the Assyrians and makes a deal with them. And the Assyrian emperor at that time was a fellow by the name of Tiglath-Pileser. And Tiglath-Pileser said, okay, I'll help you, but here are the conditions. And Ahaz goes up there and he sees this great altar that Tiglath-Pileser has in his pagan temple. And the unbelievable thing is that Ahaz made a copy of that and put it in the temple of the Lord God in Jerusalem. He replaced the temple of Sol, uh, the, the altar of Solomon with the altar of this pagan god of Assyria. Interesting story. Uh, great lesson. Just don't have time to talk about that at this point. But he had faith in God. He's unintimidated. He stood with God. Not in an arrogant, haughty way, but he stood confident with, with God. He had an uncompromising faith. It was fearless. And it was blunt. Because of his faith, he was very blunt in, in what he was saying. The next thing, look at the confidence that Isaiah has in the promises of God. Again, this is a constant all the way through. He has, he's known for his predictive prophecies. He's very confident. Okay, this is going to happen. This will happen. And, and he tells them this is what's going to happen. Very confident in the promises that God has. Well, as... Uh, as he demonstrates this confidence in, in the, the, the plans of God, there's a tremendous lesson that, that uh, goes on. He, he shows a calm in the midst of trials. We just pointed out there in Isaiah 7 and verse 2. You go out on the streets of Jerusalem, everybody's wringing their hands, everybody's upset, they're hollering, they're whining, look at what's going to happen. And here's Isaiah saying, hush up, hush up. You've got the Lord God Almighty on your side. He had a calm in the midst of trials. And an interesting comment that, uh, that I found, what seemed to be a terror to Ahaz was a trifle to the prophet. Sure, you got the Syrians that are coming. Yeah, they make some problems. But don't worry about that. That's just a trifle whenever you begin to look at the whole realm of things. How about us? You know, as, as we begin looking at, at the terrors of our life, if you put them next to the confident faith that God's people, it ought to be a trifle that we have. It all depends upon our faith that we have. Isaiah pled for Israel to have a calm, trusting confidence in the Almighty's behavior. Over in Isaiah chapter 30, we read these words in verse 15. Thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. See, that's talking about us. That's applied to us today. God gives us strength. God gives us salvation. God gives us help. But it all depends upon our confidence in the Lord God Almighty. Well, look down in verse 16. You said, no, we will flee on horses. 
therefore you shall flee, and we will ride on swift horses, therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. You trust in the world to answer your terrors, you're only going to find tragedy. But you trust in the Lord God and His power, and you're going to find that the terrors of the world are but trifles in the long, long run. Isaiah found freedom from fear because he trusted God. And isn't that what the Lord counseled us? He says, when you stand before men to the apostles and, and you're called into judgment for my, my sake, he says, what? Do not fear. Do not fear. Why? Because of the faith that we have. Now, I don't know how many will stand before the kings and the rulers of the world or before committees and councils of governments that are not uh, necessarily friendlies. But the fact is, the promise of Isaiah applies today. You can be bold and you can be blunt and you can do that because of your confidence in the promises of God. Look at another point. Isaiah says, your terrors become trifles because of the greatness of your God. Okay, a very personal question to ask, who is greater than your God? What terrors in your life are greater than your God? Now, you probably have some pretty big terrors. You have some pretty big problems. But Isaiah tells you, there's nothing that is greater than your God. When your calm dissolves into chaos, do you tremble in fear or look confidently to the Almighty who will protect and comfort? That's what Isaiah is trying to tell Ahaz in chapter 7. We'll look more at that. Another point. He was great because he was distressed at man's cynicism and folly. You read through Isaiah and you can't help but see just how upset. Oh, he's more than upset. He was he was really aggravated. Because here are these people. They ought to have been the, the most confident and the bold uh, boldness should have characterized them. And yet they turned away from God. They're very cynical about God. How can God save us when we're facing these iron chariots? That was what Isaiah faced. And so he was astonished that people would treat God's commandments so, so lightly and that they would shun dependence upon God. Over in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, The Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You're not to say it's a conspiracy in regard to all these people this people call a conspiracy. You're not to fear what they fear, being dread of it. Why? Because he says in verse 13, It is the Lord of hosts whom you shall regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. He will become a sanctuary. And so the prophet here would speak to these people and tell them to trust in God and be confident. And they just turned their ears. They had ears, he said, but, but they would not hear. Over in Isaiah 28, verses 17 and 18. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Then hell will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow with secret plague. Your covenant with death will be canceled. Your pact with Sheol will not 
They thought they had everything sold up. You know, we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear the grave. We have our own trust and our own confidence. And Isaiah was just distressed over this. When we shun God's power and trust worldly power, we become enslaved to fear. And it's upsetting that there are people in the Lord's church today that are, are slaves of fear because they do not have the faith in God that they ought to. Many today, as they look at, at all the problems and, and the insecurities of people around about them, they, they cower in silence. Instead of speaking boldly, they just, they just hush up. Instead of boldly confronting them and saying, look, you're doing wrong, you need to turn, they remain silent. Most will admit that there's evil, but very few will have courage to speak out against evil. And in our world today, evil is becoming more and more prevalent. I haven't watched, and I will not watch, but there's some television show called Evil. Why in the world would I want to watch that? You know, why, why do I want to do that? And yet it's, it's uh, evidently a, a big show, but uh, it's, it's not one of my concerns at all. We ought to be distressed about the situations that are surrounding us. We ought to be angered by the flagrant rejection that the Almighty God is shown in our world. The Apostle Paul felt this way. If you look in Acts 17 at Athens, Paul, his spirit was provoked. He was upset. In, in Romans 10, he said, my heart's desire is that though He was upset because those of his relations were not saved. He didn't keep quiet about it, but he, he said, I'm upset about it. And he would confront them. As 2 Corinthians 11, he says, there's daily pressure on me for the concern of the church. A great character is distressed at man's cynicism and folly. Greatness does not keep silent. Greatness does not just give a phrase and hope that they catch it. Like Brother Woods told me, you've got to be blunt. You've got to tell them this is exactly the way it is. That's what Isaiah did. Another point. His character is great because he had an utter distrust of the worldly power to deliver. Napoleon's an interesting historical study. If you've ever read uh, about him, uh, he began his military career as an artillery guy. And so Napoleon's answer to everything was a bigger cannon. You get a big, big enough cannon, you're going to solve any problem. Well, he... He pretty well followed that principle in his conquest uh, until his Waterloo came. And even his greatest cannons wouldn't, wouldn't work. Our trust in the great cannons will fail. And if we're trusting in worldly powers to deliver, then we're going to fail as well. Isaiah could look and he could see vast armies that are all around about him. He was familiar with the military situations and maneuvers in his particular day. Over in, in chapter 9, in uh, verses 4 and 5, talking there about the, the rulers that were oppressing them, he said, 
You shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders, the rod of their oppression, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled up in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. He says worldly powers is not going to deliver. And incidentally, immediately after that, he talks about the deliverance. And there you have that, that familiar phrase, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Here's the way for deliverance, not through worldly power and military might, but through faith. The pomp and circumstance of royal courts to Isaiah was ineffective in providing security. It just wouldn't work. Over in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 5, he says, The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of rulers. Now, I hope you're planning to read through the Bible this coming year. And as you read through the Bible, I'd like for you to just keep a little notebook about how God is in control of the world. And here's one of the passages we write down. He breaks the scepters of the rulers. Why? Because he is the governor of the world. And if he can break the scepters of the ruler, why should I be concerned about the evil forces that are affecting me? Isaiah demonstrated an unforgiving opposition to anyone who dared suggest that a military was greater in security than loyalty to God. And over and over we'll see this again. But his attitude is is not seen today. Many today seek deliverance that is fashioned according to their will instead of the will of God. And uh, so they begin to look at their circumstances and they say, well, maybe if we plan uh, a route to do this or a scheme to do that. And so they leave God completely out of the problem solving. Another factor of his great character, he was encouraged or gives us encouragement to commit to the will of God. Uh, the army, the Syrian army uh, surrounded Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 37, uh, 36 and 37. One of my favorite passages of the whole Bible. Because you have there all of the Assyrians coming out and they are so convinced that they are powerful. And they're coming up to Jerusalem and they say, just give up, give surrender. Don't listen to Hezekiah. He's trying to tell you. Don't listen. Isaiah then comes, and in that, he encourages Israel, or Judah, I'm sorry, it's Judah, uh, to be steadfast. Everything seemed desperate. All the neighboring kingdoms had been defeated. Forty-six cities had been taken by the and here they are, their camp, they're surrounding Jerusalem. The Egyptian alliance that they thought were going to bring those horses and iron chariots, that hadn't worked out very good for them. But Isaiah says, the Lord is going to deliver you. And you read chapters 36 and 37 and you'll see that. His example encouraged King Hezekiah and the citizens of Jerusalem to remain true to God. Now the devil is going to do everything he can to discourage this steadfast commitment in your life. He wants you to give up. He wants you to look at the enemies surrounding you and to think that there's no way that, that you're completely destroyed devastation is yours, you've got to find some source. It doesn't work, is what the devil wants you to think about God. But you read Isaiah and you'll see that that's, that's not true. The tribulations of the world may seem harsh and they may seem unfair, 
But do we have a choice, really, in stopping our trust to God? No, we really don't. You don't have a choice. As a Christian, Revelation 2.10 says, Be faithful even if it means your death. You be faithful to God. When the trials of life strike you hard, then you find security in the faith that you've committed to God and you find deliverance. Think back to Jonah chapter 2 and verse 2. There he is in the belly of the great fish. He says, I cried out in my distress to the Lord and he answered me. Now, if he would answer Jonah, who had flagrantly disobeyed him, he's going to answer you in your time. There's a, a statement there in, in regard to the time when everything seemed hopeless. Hezekiah, Isaiah says, because you have prayed to me, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. I will defend this house. All right, his, great, his character is great because of his knowledge of Jehovah God. And each one of these points could, uh, uh, would do well to serve a lesson. But just look. You know, here's what he knew about God. He knew God's anger. He knew God's terrible judgment. He knew God's justice. He knew God's sorrow over sin. He knew the end of the patience that God would have. Fatherhood, intolerance, sorrow, grace, and God's sovereignty. He knew all of these aspects about the Lord God Almighty. And let me suggest to you that knowing God changed Isaiah's life. J.I. Packer wrote a book a number of years ago called Knowing God. <clears throat> and, and I remember reading that, and I've reread it several times. And actually, I've taught some classes on knowing God, using that as a foundation. I think it's critical for us to know God. Because I think many folks don't know God. And I think even after we studied over and over a lifetime, we're still not going to know God. Because as Job says, he is unsearchable. We just can't explain God. But we can know God enough as Isaiah did to, uh, to live a life. And, and we'll come through each of these, uh, each of these points uh, as we go through the series. So I'm mentioning them now. We'll come back to them later. Let me ask you this. If your greatness is measured by your knowledge of the Almighty God, how great are you? How well do you know the Almighty God? Knowing God changed Isaiah. How well do you know God? All right, a, a final point here in regard to uh, the greatness of Isaiah he was great because he maintained an uncompromising exclusiveness for God. Now, he wasn't all accepting. He wasn't all inclusive. It wasn't, you're okay, I'm okay, so everything's okay. That's the culture, the philosophy of the world in which we live. Isaiah says there is but one God, and that one God gives us one set of commandments that we're to follow, and you follow those and you will, will honor God. And failure to honor God is to bring punishment into your life, as you see there in those references. Isaiah's uncompromising personality is evident as he begins to address the national sins and the individuals within Judah at this time. Isaiah told them, you've rejected God. And he never yielded that position. 
He didn't, he didn't hold back thinking he'd hurt their feelings. But he said, you've abandoned God. And he charges them with ignorance. He says, in, in simple terms, he says, you are ignorant. You have chosen ignorance. You won't look. You won't see. You won't understand. You won't listen. And you're ignorant. And he says, you need to change that. And we'll, we'll address that as we go through as well. But how do you think Isaiah be treated in our modern culture today? You know, here's a fellow saying, look, there's only one way, and you've got to do it his way. Well, they, he, Isaiah wouldn't be appreciated very much. In fact, Isaiah, traditionally, Isaiah was, was killed by King Manasseh by being sawn in two. Uh, that's one of the references in Hebrews chapter 11, and usually they, uh, they apply that to the way that Isaiah was killed uh, because he was so exclusive in what he was teaching in regard to God. What about this point? Have modern Christians allowed the world's tolerance to moderate the expected zeal for righteousness? Have we just, just come to accept, well, the world's not the world in which our families in the past grew up. You know, things have changed, and so we've got to change as well. I don't think Isaiah would understand that. The God in heaven is a God with very exclusive limits, and mankind must honor those limits. And uh, Timothy was told by Paul, God didn't give us a spirit of timidity. All right, uh, he's a great man, and uh, his greatness is is seen in, in these facts, his dedication and commitment to the Lord God Almighty, his determination that nothing, no one thing, and no one person would ever draw him away from doing what's right. Wouldn't that be great if everybody in the, the class today had this, this character and this wonderful attitude? That makes him a great man. Well, let's go back real quick to, to Charles before we run out, of, run out of time. You know, we said all these things that Charles V had done, and you would have thought that, that those feats of worldly greatness would have uh, made that king very happy. But it didn't. In fact, all of his ambitions and all of his successes never brought him true satisfaction. The great man was unsatisfied with all his successes. And, and he just basically gave up. And, and I think that you'll see that that's the case with those in the world today. I've known members of the Lord's family who once were very faithful and yet they allowed their faith to be compromised and and their lifestyles to become polluted with the world, and consequently they left the church. And like the rich man there in, in, in Luke 16 with Lazarus, at the end they see where they are and they don't like it. And they begin thinking, well, if only I could go back, or if only somebody else could go back and correct those. You can't. You make those choices. And as a result of that, that's where your eternity is going to be. You can't live in the past. You just can't do that. 
You can wish all you want for the past to become a reality, but it's not going to happen. At least not in a, a sane world and, and sane thinking. But what you can do is what Isaiah says, you can live so that when your heart needs hope, you remember the greatness of God, and if you want to find true greatness, then you, you embed these traits of Isaiah into your life. Well, we'll stop there, and next week we'll pick up. And uh, uh, let me encourage you as we go through this this study to uh, read through Isaiah and make you a list of topics that you're seeing. Uh, make a list of faith. Make a, a list of, of enticing compromises. And make a list of the greatness of God. And add to that list other topics that you'll see. That'll make your reading much more rewarding. And you'll be able to remember those things as well. So next week, next uh, Lord's Day, we'll look at, at the next lesson. Thank you very much.